Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to help yoga teachers transform their teaching by mastering the fundamentals of anatomy. By learning anatomy in my easy step-by-step way, you'll be able to confidently share it in your cues, easily create sequences, and you'll eagerly answer student questions. And all along the way, you'll increase your impact and earning potential. On the podcast here, you will hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, go ahead and visit barebonesyoga.com, my website, for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all that are there, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. And if you'd like, send me a one-line email with the answer to this question. What's your biggest frustration right now as a yoga teacher? And I'm happy to do some brainstorming with you in a free coaching session. My email address is karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Let's get to today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian and I'm your host and this is episode 199. So we are one episode away from 200 episodes and I am super excited, uh, not only just for the momentum that we've built together, but all the information that I've put out there that people can access whenever they want. And I have been so inspired by so many of the people who have joined me here on the podcast as well as the notes and the emails and the messages that I have received over the years. So I'm really gearing up uh, my thought process for what we'll do for the 200th episode. I'm thinking of some kind of podcast party theme. So stay tuned for that. And that's coming up soon because it'll be the next one after this. So just in terms of the schedule, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I always post on Mondays and I typically record on Mondays and I always give the date because even though the content is fairly evergreen, I just like you to have a sense of the date that I'm recording it, especially if there are things going on in the world or things that I might mention that aren't evergreen that are particularly germane to the specific date or time of season or whatever it is. Um, and so I typically record on Mondays and it posts on Mondays because, uh, my, uh, podcast producer has great turnaround time and he's able to post it right away. Uh, things are shifting a little bit and I wanted to stay on that posting Monday schedule. So I'm actually, uh, needing to record episodes a number of days prior to when you hear them. And I don't know if you're like me, there are a couple of podcasts that I love. I love the Rich Roll podcast. I love the Human Lab podcast. I love um, one of my business mentors, James Wedmore has uh, a podcast called Mind Your Business. And the Wedmore, the Mind Your Business podcast and the Rich Roll podcast their new episodes drop on Mondays. And literally it is the first thing I do when I wake up Monday morning, I get my phone ready with that latest podcast drop from one of those two people. And I take it 
on the walk with the dog. So if you're enjoying this podcast and you also listen on Mondays, this is definitely going to be for you. Obviously, if you're listening on other days, which definitely happens, um, just as give you a sense of the schedule. So because there's going to be some changes in the schedule of my podcast producer, I'm going to be recording a couple of days early, but you'll still get new episodes every Monday. And that's really the bottom line. So nothing's going to change in terms of when I go live with episodes. It's just that I'll be recording them a couple of days prior. So today is Thursday, August 4th, and you'll hear this episode starting Monday, August 8th. And, you know, today's episode is going to be kind of a two-parter in terms of the content that, uh, that I share, but, you know, just wanted to start out kind of giving you a little bit of a lay of the land in terms of some of the behind the scenes, <laughs> some not so very exciting, but however, Germaine, uh, um, behind the scenes details in terms of how I produce this podcast. So to start out today, I wanted to, I've talked about this a couple of times in the past, although I don't think I've done a dedicated episode to this, even if I have, and I I did look back and I didn't find one, although I do feel like I've taught about I've talked about this particular topic. However, it's sort of a ever-changing one, um, at least for me personally. And I wanna start out by just kind of asking you a question to see if this hits home for you. I wanna ask you, I wonder if you ever feel like you're teaching your, if you are teaching online, you're teaching your online classes sort of without a net. You know, do you ever feel like you're just sort of out there, we've all been um, sort of thrust into this mode of teaching online and nobody really ever taught us how to do that, right? I mean, it kind of, I mean, it not kind of, it did come out of the necessity of the moment when COVID hit and everything was closed. And you know, internationally, yoga teachers began to teach online, many of whom had never done anything online before. Um, I know for me personally, I've been running my yoga anatomy blueprint learning program for several years, and that's been an online program. So I had a lot of experience teaching online, both classes and, and teaching content. And yet I know from talking to other teachers that for many of them, the thought of opening their laptop and teaching a class to people all over the world from their laptop was just, you know, an idea they had, they had never fathomed. And so even though I've talked about this in the past, I wanted to really pull together an updated list of tips for teaching online classes. And these are just things to sort of get you thinking. Some of them you may hear and you may say to yourself, oh, I'm already doing that. Other things you may not have considered. So this is where, um, this is really the big topic of today's episode. And there will be a download. There is a download that goes with this. So as you're listening, if you think, boy, it would be really nice to have a list of all the things that she's talking about you can very easily get that because the show notes will have the link to the download that has all of what I'm going to talk about today. Now, to get the show notes, you would go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, 
and look up the podcast and on the episode itself for this episode 199 you'll see the link to the show notes and um, or you'll see the description of the show notes and the link is in there for the download and you can also just just dm me or email me and i'm happy to send it to you if you don't want to go to the website um before I get into that topic, though, I wanted to just bring your attention to a study that was recently released, and it sort of hit all the airwaves. I saw it on I saw it on CNN.com, although when I Googled for the actual article itself in the journal, in the medical journals, uh, I found a whole bunch of other references, everything from the New York Post to the Oklahoma Sentinel. I mean, this study really made the rounds. And unfortunately, I couldn't find the actual study. So if you're listening to this and you find the actual study, can you send me the link? <laughs> I, I looked on NCBI and I Googled just the researchers, the lead researcher's name, Laura Baker, and the topic of the study. And I, I actually could not find the actual study. So if you, if you do, let me know. And for whatever reason, all the articles don't link to the actual study, which I find, I don't want to say suspect, but maybe the study is not published yet. Um, or maybe it's published and the, and Laura Baker didn't want it shared. I don't know. But there are a number of articles out about it that summarize the results. And I wanted to bring it to your attention because it talks about the impact of exercise on cognitive decline, specifically halting cognitive decline. And as I give you the details of the study, you'll quickly see why it is relevant to us as yoga teachers, because one of the exercise modalities studied was stretching. And the reason I think this is so important for us as teachers to know about is because the more we can broaden our perspective, our view, our understanding with science-based information about the benefit of yoga to people, and the more well, and the and the better versed or the more well versed we are on those benefits and can articulate them in our classes, share them with our students, the more impact we will have as teachers. You know, if students continue to think in the way a lot of social media feeds them messaging, you have to be super flexible, you have to stretch every day, stretching is good, tight muscles are bad. You know, if that's the continued perception that people have about coming to yoga, I can't do yoga, yoga is too hard, I'm not flexible enough, all those things that continue to persist. If we can't counter that with science-backed information as to the benefit of practicing yoga, we're missing out on a huge opportunity to expand our impact. Because otherwise, people are just going to look at yoga as a very transactional interaction with us where they come, they do it, they leave, they feel good while they're there. And then that's it. The results are not maintained or the results don't last at all. And even though that quality of lasting results or lasting impact from any kind of exercise is another parameter that needs to be studied, the issue that I'm trying to 
um, convey to you is as we get better informed and as the medical community gets better informed and as there are more studies like the one I'm gonna tell you about now out there, it really proves the benefit of yoga practice for things like longevity, for things like halting or slowing the rate of cognitive decline. And these are really important topics that many people way smarter than me are dedicating their lives. People like David Sinclair and, you know, even to a certain extent, Tony Robbins and, you know, people, um, other, other scientists that are in the longevity space that are looking for ways to allow us to live longer and be healthier or healthy and functional. So all of that, I really strongly believe is important for teachers to know. And that's why when I see studies like this, I like to bring them to your attention here on the show so that you can then go out, read the study for yourself, read the articles and get up to date on the data and then share it with your students. And, and also as a teacher, know that you are doing so much more than just running people through the poses. And that sort of could lead me into a whole other conversation about knowing your value, knowing your worth, pricing your services. That's another topic for another show. But know that that's baked into this. You know, it's baked into it because if you as a yoga teacher simply just look at what you're doing as that one transaction, yeah, you probably would underprice yourself. But if you look at yourself as almost part of someone's long-term healthcare team, now you can begin to see how you can justify a higher rate. I'd, I'd posit to you that you could do that anyway, because what we do, even if we don't go into all of this other stuff, is so valuable for people's health and wellness, both mentally and physically. However, a lot of studies like this give us real data-driven um, evidence as to the benefit of yoga practice. And so that means when you are a yoga teacher and you're teaching and leading somebody through this practice and it's having a, an impact on their brain, hello, that allows us to really justify when we charge $125, $150, $200 for a private session, et cetera, et cetera. So having said that, um, let me just give you the, the bullet points here from the study. So the main researcher, her name is Laura Baker. She's a professor of gerontology and geriatric medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, excuse me, North Carolina. And she began this study looking at the effect of aerobic exercise on cognitive decline. However, she had another group of people who performed daily stretching. And she was concerned at the beginning of the study that the results were going to show that only the group who participated in aerobic exercise got benefit and just put a pin in that because we'll see what happens. So what she found is that cognitive function did not decline over 12 months for either intervention group, the people who did aerobic exercise or the people who did stretching, balance, 
and range of motion. So again, that is yoga, stretching, balance, and range of motion. That's what we're doing with, with people. Uh, a further researcher who wasn't involved in the study, but who reviewed it, who is here in where I am in Boston at Harvard Medical School, Rudy Tanzi, reviewed the findings and found that in the study, it referenced 120 to 150 minutes per week for 12 months may slow cognitive decline in sedentary older adults with mild cognitive impairment. And then it goes on to say, Tansy, who was not involved in the study, has examined the role of exercise in mice genetically bred to have Alzheimer's and found exercise induces the birth of new neurons in the section of the brain most affected by Alzheimer's while also boosting beneficial growth factors that improve neural activity. There's a growth factor called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor that um, generates new neurons and it is released upon exercise. So BDNF is something that researchers measure to determine um, the impact of exercise on neuro uh, regeneration or not so much regeneration of, of neurons that have died, but the generation of new neurons. And there's a lot of information on that. There's a really good book called Spark. And I believe the author is, oh gosh, John Rady, R-A-T-E-Y. And he talks about the benefits of exercise and gets into the um, release of BDNF. Be that as it may, what this researcher here, Laura Baker, was concerned about was that only the group who participated in the aerobic exercise was going to get the benefit of slowing down cognitive decline. But in fact, as you, as you just heard, that's not, that's not what happened. Both groups got the benefit. So the study um, was recently presented at a conference in San Diego on Alzheimer's. And um, let me just make sure there's nothing else here. Uh, participate, participants in the study underwent cognitive testing and then were randomized into two groups. One group did moderate intensity aerobic training on treadmills or stationary bikes, striving for a goal of 70 to 85% of heart rate reserve. The other group did stretching, balance, and range of motion exercises designed to allow them to move their body in ways that would help them navigate in real life. Folks in the balanced range of motion group said they were thrilled they could go to soccer games with grandkids without being concerned about tripping, or they could drive and turn their neck to see their to see the back seat, which they had not been able to do before. Both groups exercised twice a week with a personal trainer and then two other times weekly on their own for the first 12 months. Uh, at the end of the 12 months, cognitive function had not declined in either group. That's impressive, Baker said, because a control group of equally matched people with mild cognitive impairment who did not exercise did have decline in cognitive function. So the bottom line here for us as yoga teachers is that what we're doing with uh, our students is not only improving physical health, but is improving brain health and can have a preventative effect on uh, cognitive impairment. And I don't want you to think this is just something for people who are teaching older adults. You know, 
all of those functional activities that I just quoted from the article, the being able to go to a soccer game with your grandkids and go up and down the stairs uh, when you're there, being able to turn around and grab something from your back seat. There are plenty of people under 50 years old who don't have appropriate functionality to be able to do either of those two, two things, either from overtraining, overuse injuries, actual injuries, back pain, knee pain. I mean, think about people in your life who are under the age of 50 and who complain about aches and pains in their bodies. I mean, it's rampant. And so while cognitive decline is certainly less of an issue in someone probably under 50, anything we can do to start building lifestyle habits so that as we do age, we can stave these things off in terms of their advancement uh, is should be, I would think, welcome um, techniques that we would bring into our lives. So that's out there. That study is out there. You can just Google it. Just Google Laura Baker cognitive decline and you'll, you'll get the hit there. Um, and I think that, that just gives us some really interesting things to talk about with our students. So now that we've talked about that, let's just go over some tips for teaching online classes. And again, I, I want to just frame this from the point of view of, you know, if you're out there and you're teaching online, or maybe you want to teach online and you feel like you're not really sure how to begin. Um, maybe you're even feeling like, wow, it's kind of, is it too late to do it? I would definitely say not. You know, I think teaching online is really the, the way that we're going to be teaching maybe not necessarily primarily. However, it's, it's really here to stay. And so the better we can be at engaging people in this online space, the more potential we will have as teachers to grow and the more impact we'll have on students who aren't even in the same room with us, let alone even in the same state or even in the same country. I mean, I am always amazed when I have people from all over the world join my classes and it's just such a cool experience to be able to practice with people in different time zones. And that's certainly something that we couldn't do when we were in person. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's not really about comparing. I know there's sort of that natural tendency to compare teaching online with teaching in person. I think, you know, really we're at the point now where because it's sort of here to stay, we can just look at these two things as two different sort of business silos, two different ways that we attract clients, meet people, um, teach, provide our services. And it's just another spoke in the wheel. And that's a good thing because the more we have all our eggs in one basket, um, the more vulnerable we are. And that certainly became clear in March of 2020. I mean, March 15th of 2020 was the last in-person class that I taught in a studio. And I had a number of other things I was doing, many of which were in person. So all of those things shut down. And I'm sure for you, all of your things that you were doing in person shut down. And I was fortunate in that I had a whole other host of things that I did online, especially my own anatomy program. So I could keep trucking along with that and beef that up and expand that. And I obviously had more time to do that. But for a lot of teachers, they did not have that. So that's what I mean about putting all your eggs in one basket. Now in this new way, 
We have teaching in person, we have teaching online, and that diversification protects you as a yoga teacher so that if something does go away or the frequency decreases for reasons that are outside of your control, you can keep moving forward, teaching, earning money, uh, connecting with students, having an impact, adding value uh, through these other ways online. So as I said, as I go through this, don't feel like you need to take notes because you can just grab the PDF in the show notes or just send me a DM on Instagram or an email and I'll send it to you. So the first one is, this is probably one of the most important ones, I think, which is to keep your sequences short. In as much as it would seem easier for people to join online classes because they're home. Uh, what I have found is that it's almost harder in a way because there's so many other pulls that people have pulling them away from devoting even a half an hour to their own health. And so the longer you keep that person in their living room on their yoga mat while their family's like running around them or while they're thinking about other things they need to do in their home, the harder it's going to be to keep their focus. So I'm teaching 30 minute classes. I, I'm pretty amazed at how much I can get into a 30 minute class. Um, maybe 45 minutes is, is, is a nice uh, middle ground there between the 90 minutes that we used to be teaching or the hour or the hour and 15 minutes. So you decide, I would definitely say though, teaching an online class for more than an hour, unless it's a, a pretty unique circumstance, I would think would be really hard for people to stay focused with. So that's one tip, keep your sequences short. The other one that sort of goes hand in hand with that is to use action cues. Use action-oriented cues that don't require a lot of words on your part, a lot of energy on your part to share, and really communicate clearly with the person what you want them to do. You know, I mean, there's no denying there's that extra layer of transmission that we're going through because we're not in the same room as the person. And oftentimes they're on mute, so it's not even like they spontaneously can ask a question if they want. So the clearer your cues are, and you know, by and large, the clearest cues are going to be action-oriented cues. So keep them to that. Um, try to keep you know, kind of excess chatter to a minimum so that in the transmission over the airwaves there of, of the instruction, you are just simply hitting their nervous system with the key things that you want them to do in language that's really easy for them to understand. The next thing is hold back from doing the entire practice with the class and instead talk them through the sequence. I typically tell people when they log on that I'm not gonna be doing a lot of the sequence with them so they don't even need to see their computer. Um, and so you can decide how you wanna do that. I pretty regularly do start out in a standing position doing things with them to just establish a sense of connection and to be able to see them. But after that, and especially when they start moving to the ground, I'm generally not doing that with them. There may be occasional times, and I typically will say, um, I'm doing this one with you if you wanna look up for reference, but typically I'm not doing a lot of the practice. So just kind of play with how much, if you feel like you're practicing a lot, maybe just think about cutting back 
in chunks of like 25% until you're primarily just standing there talking, talking to them. And, you know, this will also have a profound effect on the quality of your speaking voice, because there's no denying if you are not doing the practice, you are going to have a much clearer speaking voice. And that's going to really help them have a better experience because you're not out of breath, they can hear you clearly, and um, your voice is really conveying a lot, a lot better from a quality perspective. The next thing is, this is one of my most favorite things about teaching online. Let them know the theme for the class before you start. I was pretty much doing this before, um, before the studios had to shut down uh, that first time. This was always something I really enjoyed coming up with the theme for class and sharing it with, with the students before I started, started the class. With teaching online, you can not only definitely do that, but if you have, like I have a skeleton in my house, I don't necessarily expect you to have a skeleton, but if you had something in your house like a skeleton that would add to your explanation of the theme, you can reference that. You know, you have a lot more flexibility and access to tools that you didn't have in studios. And I know even for, for a lot of teachers, like the idea of starting out with maybe a quick conversation is something that they're not doing. You know, they're just kind of having people come into the room and they're saying, okay, everybody, let's come into the downward facing dog, bam. And then everybody starts the practice. Think about that initial conversation as a way to build connection, as a way to allow them to see you, as a way to, you know, kind of get them ready to begin as an opportunity, you know, if, if, just to kind of give them a sense of here's the journey we're going to go on. I want to give you a sense of the roadmap so that, you know, as we're going through it, um, you know, kind of what the logic is that, you know, blends all of this together. So that's, that's another one. Number five, only use music if you can keep your cues to a minimum. So your students aren't trying to hear you over the music. I haven't really asked people who have come to my classes for feedback on how the music sounds. I don't use it that often, probably one class or two classes a month I might use it. I think it can be a nice touch as long as it's coming across clearly between your speaking and the music. And you won't really know that unless someone complains afterwards or during the class unmutes themselves and says something like, hey, I can't hear you over the music. So I, I sort of feel like we should just avoid the music in general for online classes because there's really no way for us to evaluate as we're teaching how that's coming across. And that's really a big part of your role as a teacher is to keep assessing the environment. And when the environment is a virtual one, you can't really assess that because it's going to be impacted by things that are out of your control. If the person taking your class, if one of the people in your virtual class is in a space on their end that's really noisy, that's nothing you can control. But if you're adding to the stress by having music in your class, that's just kind of adding this background noise, it's going to be frustrating for your students. So without an ability to really evaluate how it's coming across, I would say just skip it. The next one is use class sequences with a high degree of accessibility. And this has to do with, you know, 
you don't really know who's coming to your classes. And if you're in a situation where you do know who's coming to your classes, and this really goes for in-person classes as well, but here we're talking virtual. Um, when you have that sort of, I'm not really sure, or I don't know that person well, <clears throat> you don't really know what to present them with posture wise, so that there's a sense that they can kind of get their legs underneath them and really, you know, complete the practice. So think about sequences that have a high degree of accessibility. Things where you're not gonna ask people to double bind, you're not gonna ask people to do handstands or headstands, you know, shoulder stands, you're really gonna just do straight up kind of uh, fundamental poses that don't require a lot of advanced knowledge. And this is a way to kind of mitigate the risk for everybody. And I think, you know, the obvious thing is when we're teaching online, we can't physically assist somebody. We can't really have our eyes on them in a way that allows us to help them modify or ask them to back off from something. And, you know, of course, keep in mind, some of the people that come to your class might not even turn their camera on. So then you're completely in the dark, literally. So I would say in general, keep your sequences filled with poses that are fundamental postures and try to avoid adding on a whole bunch of extra things. You know, even something like half moon can be pretty challenging. However, because that is sort of a standing pose, I mean, you're leaning forward, but you know, the, the risk is generally low because they've still got, you know, one foot on the ground. If you're teaching it with a block, now they've got the block there for additional foundation. So hopefully that, you know, allows accessibility and that is a good example of a pose that has challenge in it too. So just kind of keep that in mind as you're putting your sequences together. Number seven, avoid using props except maybe a block. And this is really just because people generally won't have them. You can certainly say grab a winter scarf to use in, for a strap. I mean, that's pretty common that people have a scarf hanging around in their house or a, a fashion type scarf. Um, and I would really say having a block is sort of essential for all students, but I like to start out my classes by saying, you know, hey, grab a block. If you don't have one, that's okay, but think about getting one. It's just really great to have in your house for, for your online yoga. There's so many good ways you can use blocks and so many ways you can just integrate into the sequence, the use of the block. So I would definitely, um, you know, beyond that kind of keep things to a minimum. Now, if you are teaching restorative classes, like, you know, if you listen to the episode, um, two episodes back with Allison Ray Jirasi, she has that sort of specialty practice uh, slash teaching style where she's using a lot of props. And I think I even asked her on the show, how do you kind of forewarn people that they need to come to class with, with you know, blankets and straps and bolsters and stuff. And they just kind of get to know her style. And that's how, um, sorry. And that's how um, she kind of gets them geared up to use props. If you're not, you know, using them regularly in your sequencing, I would say just stick with the block. <laughs> uh, the next one, encourage students to turn on their cameras once and after that, just let it go. This used to really bother me because I used to feel somehow like if I couldn't see them, it was really putting them at a disadvantage and I was frustrated that they weren't allowing me to see their space in a way 
to help them. But I, I sort of quickly realized as I got some feedback from people that you never really know why someone has their camera off. It could be that they're embarrassed about what their home looks like because maybe they have like high standards for how neat it should be and they don't want you to judge them if their house looks messy. Maybe they've got other people in their house that don't wanna be on camera. Um, you know, there can be all sorts of reasons. So I would say, you know, I, I think it's totally appropriate at the beginning of class to say to people, hey, if you have your cameras off, feel free to turn them on so that I can see you and we can, you know, have a little bit of, of back and forth at the end if you have any questions, um, but it's totally up to you. So you don't want to say it in a way that makes them feel badly if they don't turn them on, but, um, you know, to just maybe say something at the beginning to encourage them to. And, and then for those people who are sort of on the fence, maybe that will have them turn on their camera. And then it is a little bit more, uh, it gives it a little bit more of a sense of a community feel or a live class feel in person when you can actually see them. The next one is set up students to be on mute when they log in to cut down on distracting noise. So that's just a Zoom thing. Uh, or you could be using another platform that I'm sure has this functionality where when you set up the class before you post it on whatever site you're using to post and publicize your classes, just make sure people are muted when they log in. So that way you don't have to ask them to mute themselves. They'll just be muted. And then I think I have a point on here at the end of class, I always encourage people if they have any questions to just unmute themselves. So that's kind of how you can blend that in. The next one is set yourself up in a quiet part of your home so as to minimize background noise. If you have that availability in your house to find a space where you're not going to be bothered by people passing by or the pets in your home or other people in your home, that's obviously ideal. You know, if you can sort of cordon off a space where you can, you know, kind of clear it of clutter and put yourself in front of a window even where you get good natural light, those kinds of things will help increase the um, enjoyment of your students because they'll be able to see you clearly and they won't be distracted by what's all around you. Uh, the next thing is don't record your classes so your students know their practice won't be broadcast or reused in the future. I think this is this is good. I mean, I don't really know why you'd want to record your classes because you're probably not going to repurpose them and send them out again. So there really is no reason to record them unless there's some special one-time thing you're doing where you let people know ahead of time. I would definitely, if I'm going to be recording a class, let people know before they sign up that that class will be recorded and repurposed. And that may actually cause some people to put their cameras on, uh, on not mute, but to turn their cameras off. So general classes, I just consider them open classes. Anybody can join obviously, and they're not recorded. I'm never gonna reuse them. So people don't need to worry about if they do have their cameras on that somehow that class is gonna be publicized and uh, put out on the public domain in the future. Uh, a couple more. The next one, do a test recording. And if the camera provided with your computer is sufficient, just use that instead of adding an extra one. I mean, it doesn't really take too much to attach a, um, an extra camera, I forget what they call it for some reason, to your camera uh, webcam. 
to your computer, to your laptop. And there are a lot of webcams out there that really have better cameras than the one that your laptop has baked in. So it definitely will look better for the people who are logged into your class if you're using a better camera. But I don't want you to feel like you have to order something off of Amazon. They're not that expensive. I think um, the webcam I have is under $100. I just have found that it doesn't, when I watch the replay uh, of not classes I do, but workshops I do, if I ever do a workshop where I don't hook up the webcam, it looks just as fine to me. And I'll even tell you for the podcast here, I just record this right on the mic that comes with my Apple laptop. And there are plenty of people that have all sorts of external mic situations and setups to record their show. And um, I don't really find that it's necessary to, to do that. I have that equipment and I, I choose not to use it because it's just cumbersome. So, you know, these are things that it's all about ease of use for you and providing a quality product for, for the people who come to your class. Along those same lines, be sure you have sufficient lighting so the students can see you. So if you're in a room that has an overhead light, you can use that, but just look for shadows, look for glare on you. If you can be by windows, have good natural light. I think the, the external light source is definitely something that is worth investing in an external light um, over even a webcam, because if they can't see you because you're dark, that's not, you know, you're in the dark, that is obviously a problem. So you wanna be sure you're well lit. And at the same time, if you're well lit, look at how the view is and you can do a test recording because sometimes I know for me, the yoga studio room I have in my house, the overhead light glares on me if I don't turn it down a little bit. So you're gonna to wanna to play around with some of those settings. Uh, the next thing is, there's three more, keep the area around your mat as clear as possible of distracting furniture, books, or other household items. When you, when you have people log into your class, you don't want them to see you sitting on a yoga mat and there's like four houseplants around you and a chair with clothes and a blanket and, you know, a dog bed. You want to make the look of it as clean as possible. I think it's great to have a couple of lifestyle things in the shot. Outside of that, I think you want to just make it as minimal as possible so that they're not distracted and so that it looks professional. After Shavasana, close class by inviting them to come to the next class and share how to sign up. And that's just a way for you as they come up from Shavasana to have something to say as you're sort of winding the, the class down. And then invite people after class to unmute themselves and ask any questions they may have. I have found over the past, uh, let's see, almost year of teaching weekly consistent online classes, that um, people really do enjoy asking questions and just interacting. And I find that I have a lot more interaction with people in the online space than I even did off, you know, in real life. So that's been kind of a fun difference for me. So I hope you found this helpful. Again, all of these tips, and there were 17 of them. You can get on the template, just send me a DM on Instagram or email me, karen at barebonesyoga.com, and I will send you the, um, the tips sheet here that we just reviewed. 
I would love to hear what you think of this and get your feedback on it. So also message me, let me know your thoughts on this episode if you found this helpful. And as always, thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for that 200th episode next time and what exciting things come along with that that I'll be thinking about over the next few days uh, in anticipation for that milestone episode. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you on the next episode of Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode. And thank you so much for being part of my community and for spending some time with me here on the show. I wanted to wrap up this episode with just a quick note. I have a brand new recorded workshop page, and I'm really excited to offer you an opportunity to watch recorded workshops whenever you want. I have the first installment of a workshop on the page on the website, and it is a short workshop all about how to give effective cues. And so all you need to do to watch this free workshop is go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and you'll see the listing in the dropdown for recorded workshops. When you click that page, you'll see on that page, the link to sign up to watch that recorded workshop. I'll be adding more workshops in the future to this page. And it's a way that you can access educational and growth information for teachers without having to make a workshop at a particular time. I love to get together with teachers live, both in person and of course online, which is where I'm doing most of my interaction with teachers right now. However, I appreciate that sometimes people can't make a workshop or the time doesn't work for them or they're in a different time zone. So I want you to know that this page can be a resource for you so that as you're out there and you have questions about different things, or you have maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes that you want to devote to your continuing education as a teacher, you can just go to my website, pull up this recorded workshops page, and there will be resources there for you to take a look at. And all of the workshops that I share are all designed at number one, giving you information, and number two, giving you the skills that come from getting that information. It doesn't do you any good if I'm just giving you information on anatomy. If I don't show you how you can use it in your teaching to grow as a teacher, to grow your impact, then it's really not very useful. So all my workshops will have that dual focus sharing a little bit, and then showing you how to apply it. So I hope you'll check that out. If you have any questions or feedback, definitely let me know. Just send me an email, karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and I look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.